Welcome to the 10th edition of Transformation Talks. My name is David Lancefield and I'm a partner in Strategy and. It's fantastic to welcome James Timpson, OBE, CEO of Timpsons. The OBE was awarded for your services to training and employment for disadvantaged people. So congratulations for that. And we'll come back to that topic later in our podcast. Uh, the Timpson Group has been a family owned and operated business for, for 150 years. And as I'm reminded, it's much more than just cobblers. It's, it has a wide range of while you can wait services on the high street from key cutting to dry cleaning to engraving and photo IDs. There are eight brands in your portfolio from Timpsons to Jeeves to Johnson's the Cleaners to Snappy Snaps. And in this podcast, I'd like to talk to you, James, about your views on the changing British high street uh, and Timpsons role within that landscape, um, how you run and transform your own family business and your own approach to leadership and management. Uh, particularly around how you devolve responsibility to the people in the business. Uh, James, you're very welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, so let's start perhaps on the high street then. Um, the story of Timpsons is very much about your long history on the British high street. You were founded as a family business in 1865 and now have 2,000 stores across the UK and Ireland. But clearly we hear a lot of doom and gloom about the high street more generally, and it's quite a disruptive environment. What's, what's your approach to the high street in terms of how are you trying to transform the business in that context? We're very fortunate because most of the things that we do, you can't do on the internet. And over half of our shops are actually in supermarket car parks or in out of town supermarket sites. Mm -hmm. So we, yes, we have been affected by the change of the high street, but only because we've opened up a load of shops against ourselves. So what we found is that where we do a really good job, where we have really good colleagues who give really good service, we continue to do well. So we haven't opened up any new shops on the high street for the last five years, but we have opened up 550 shops out of town. Right. So we're growing, our light for light sales are up, uh, our profits up, whilst most retailers are in retreat. But we're different because we don't compete online and we don't really have any competition. It's interesting, I was reading last, last year in December that the government published a report on the state of the high street uh, with recommendations from, by a panel chaired by your, your father, your dad, John. Um, and the key recommendation was about reinventing town centres in a more collaborative way um, with sections of the community to try and put the buzz back in the high street. Um, what are you doing within, I know you have out of town places and supermarkets and so on, but what are you doing with that idea? How are you trying to put the buzz back into the town centres? Well, so far as our business goes, we just got to do a really good job in the shop that we have. So what's really important to me is we have really high standards. So our shops look good. We invest in our shops in the high streets. You know, we paint the shop front, we refit the shops, and we, we have a sort of a tradition in our business where we believe that we have to have really high standards, not just the bit that the customer sees, but the bit out the back as well. So you know, we have an important role to play in any high street because we're in most of them, because we have you know, Timpson shops, Max Spielman shops, Snappy Snap shops, and so on. Yeah. But what's really important for us is that we do our little bit very well. How do you maintain the standards? Because in some ways, when it works well and you have great people, you have tight trust, they'll keep the high standards, but you devolve responsibility a lot, right? And you're organized, that's one of your hallmarks. How do you keep those high standards up? Well, when you talk about standards, you can talk about the, you know, the physical standards of the shop or the, or the standards of the culture. So let's just start on the, the standards of, the, of our shops. I have never known a great business have poor standards. So we insist on really high standards across the board. And we do a thing called perfect day, where we have one day of the year where each shop has to be perfect. As in, everything is spotless, all the light bulbs are working, the toilet's clean, there's enough 
um, plasters in the first aid box and there's no chewing gum on the carpets. And we go around and we mark it and everyone gets a, you know, a, a mark out of 100 and we give awards out and so on. So we're always resetting the standards. But as part of our culture, we have two rules. The first is you put the money in the till and the other is you look the part. And look the part basically means standards. So we look smart. You know, so for example, if you want to grow a beard in our business, you can do, but you do it in the holidays because you, you either have a beard or you're clean shaven. Um, you know, we don't have the radio on. Uh, everyone in our Timpson shops, everyone wears a tie and a badge. And those are the standards that we really insist on. But there are so many other things you can do whatever you want at. How do you how do you enforce enforce? So you have the one day, but and that's the mantra. And you, but how do you actually enforce it? Given you've got so many different shops across the country, different different types of shops. How do you actually? It's it's ingrained in our culture right. that if you are a colleague who cannot maintain high standards, ninety nine percent of the time your figures aren't very good either, because right. high standards go with high performance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we'll give you every opportunity to improve. We'll go back and reset the shop and reset the shop. But it may be that this is not the job for you. So on the one hand, you're obviously welcoming and you, you look after your employees, we'll come on to that. But at the same time, if you, after a while, if you're not performing, you know, you leave the business. So talking about people, you, you hire people with great personalities. You talk about having amazing colleagues, uh, which is refreshingly, well, it's refreshing and it's refreshingly simple. Um, why is attitude more important then than, say, skills or experience in terms of the people you hire? Okay, so I've learned over the years how this, how this works for us. Because when I first started in the business, I was going around our competitors' shoe repair shops and finding out who was the world's best shoe repairers and recruiting them. The problem was, they may be really good at shoe repairs, but their personality wasn't right. So what I decided is much better is to recruit on personality and then train for skill. Because no matter how hard you try, you can't train someone to have a different personality than they have. So CVs for us, complete waste of time. All I need is your phone number, really, and I'll give you and your name and I'll give you a ring. We'll interview anybody who applies to us for a job. And we are looking purely for personality. So people who are fun, interesting, engaging, they got that inner energy. We don't want someone who's moody, lazy, and scruffy, um, even though they may be technically very good. We don't need that. We need a consistent kind of personality. So when you go around our shops, you will see a consistent type of person, personality um, across the business. I wonder why some corporates don't do the same. I suspect they see it as safe by following a set of rules on recruitment. And that's why people, people apply online, the computers sift out anybody who's got a criminal record, anybody who hasn't got the right skills, anybody who puts a spelling mistake in there. Um, and actually, from my experience, they're often missing out on some of the best people. If you look at some of the great leaders of some of our best companies, um, they didn't go to university, their spelling's rubbish. Um, most entrepreneurs can't even spell entrepreneur properly. So I think it's a safe way of recruiting if you make it part of a process. Um, we just feel it's better just to interview everybody and judge them on their personality, not what they've done. Um, you're known clearly for recruiting and training former offenders. I'm just interested in where that, that came from in terms of the idea. Well, it start, started like lots of things in business by pure chance because I was invited to a local prison near where I live in Warrington. Yeah. And it was just like some sort of local businesses go around and I was, I was interested. Everyone's always interested in going to see in a prison. And the young guy, I was given this young guy called Matthew to show me around. Uh, you know, we saw the gym and the library and the cells, all this sort of stuff. And his personality was just what I like. He was buzzy, interesting, young guy, 
got into a fight, never done anything wrong before, couldn't go to university, applied for 70 jobs, got turned down on all of them. So I said, when you're out, give me a ring and I'll give you a job. Um, I forgot all about it. Uh, and then I got a call from his mother saying he's out tomorrow, still can't get a job, will you take him on? So he's still with, still with us today. Um, he's really successful, really, really nice guy. He's now married with two kids. So it's all worked out well for Matthew. So then I thought I'd go and get a few more. And I got up to about 20 um, ex-offenders, um, joined the business, and I made a lot of mistakes, but I sort of worked out how to do it by then. And then I told everyone in the business, and they thought that the people I'd recruited were really good, so they gave me the thumbs up, and I went for it. So now we've got 650 um, prison leavers in our company. We've probably got more than that, but that's who've, and, you know, those are the people we've actually met in prison and recruited. And what was the impact at the time on, on the rest of the employees in terms of that's a new type of you know, employee in the organisation? Um, the reason why it works is because the people I picked were good. And most people are happy to work alongside someone if they're good. If they work hard, they get stuck in and you know, they make the whole thing work. What's your next group then? Have you got another one you lined up? Well, we're doing work with veterans, uh, which we're having increasing success. We started off pretty slow on that, but I think we've worked out how to do it. Um, and we have three uh, Down, syndrome, Down syndrome adults working in the office, which I'm really pleased about. Um, so I just think, you know, we employ five, five and a half thousand people in our company, but I see it as five and a half thousand people in our family. And the more diverse we are, the better. And you're very sort of open and inclusive in terms of, you know, the holiday homes. And then I think after 25 years, you can get a dinner with, with the family. So uh, the, it feels like a family in terms of how it comes across. Yeah. yeah. So, so it comes down to values. And what I recognize is important is you need a strong culture. You need to recruit great personalities consistently, but none of that works if you don't look after your people. Yeah. So what we try and do is find every way possible to amaze our colleagues so they're inspired to give really good service. So the way it works is this, everyone gets their birthday off as an extra day off. We give out loans to anybody who've got short-term financial problems. We have 20 holiday homes where colleagues go on a free holiday and they're really nice holidays. Uh, we do dreams come true, so we do half a million a year um, to colleagues for their dream to come true. Maybe um, health issues, so we do lots of, sort of dentist treatments and that sort of stuff. To, um, we do a lot of trips to Disneyland because parents have always wanted to go but they've never been able to save up enough. So you're going, you're going to Disney. Um, or it could be just driving lessons so I can get on in the company and do that sort of thing. But the reason why I believe it's really important to look after your people is because it works and I'm really commercial mm. and mm. you know the more we spend on looking after our colleagues the more holiday homes we open the more new benefits I, I found a someone told me today a new one which we're gonna have to adopt which is people need a day off when their pet dies because some people to, to some people it's like a, a normal bereavement mm. so that's another another benefit to add to the list mm. but um, the more you give the more you get Indeed, I, I remember looking at one of your tweets where you said that you, are, you don't spend on marketing or external PR agencies. You give that money to, the, to, to your people. Yeah, so we, yeah, we have no marketing or PR. Um, I mean, you know, we're, a sh we're a key cutting business and we recruit burglars and armed robbers. So, you know, no marketing department would ever let me do it in the first place if we went for that. Um, but yeah, the best marketing we have is when our colleagues give great service in the shops. So that's why 4% of all of our transactions are for free. That's why we do free dry cleaning if you're unemployed and again for an interview and all that sort of stuff. So it doesn't cost us anything. It's just 
a good idea. And you're you're keeping the business fresh. You're trying new services all the time. Where do you get where do you get that stimulus from? Where do you, where, where, where do the ideas come from? I spend a lot of time looking around, and I spend a lot of time asking people who have gone into industries, gone into businesses, how it works. So, for example, we've got seven little barber shops we've opened up in supermarket car parks, and. I've just, I just sort of noticed was walking around high streets that the only shops opening up were tattoo parlours, uh, nail bars and barber shops. So I didn't want to do tattooing. I thought, imagine the, I could just imagine the customer complaints on that. Didn't fancy doing the nail bars, but the barbers are interesting, especially doing it out of town. Mm. So I spoke to Sainsbury's and Tesco's and so on, and they said, let's have a go. Mm. And, uh, but we're learning. So how do you, given you're, you're, you're growing the business, uh, trying new things, it's a family business. How do you get? How do you get support then? Because it sounds like a lot, a lot on your shoulders. How do you? How do you build your management team around you? Well, we don't recruit anybody from outside the business. To, everyone's promoted from within. So I'm really fortunate that my colleagues who run the various businesses get it because they've been in there for so long. So my role is to encourage them and to make the sort of strategic decisions around property and capex and so on. Mm. I spend a lot of time going around the shops. To, you know, the best way to solve any problem is to ask the colleagues who serve the customers because they know what to do. You know, if there's a problem in the warehouse, don't ask me. Ask the guys who work in the warehouse. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm in a business group called the Young Presidents Organization, mm. which yeah. basically young means under 50, so I'm still in. Um, and that has been a really good source of um, advice and um, encouragement and competitiveness. Yeah. So there's a lot of strengths in, in the family, not only the family business promoting within, but the, the culture you have. What are the downsides? Are there any downsides from the model or the approach you have? I think we are probably um, less brutal than lots of other companies when it comes to tackling uh, people problems. You know, so I, I, I feel as a leader, I have a moral duty to make sure that my fantastic colleagues only work alongside people who are as fantastic as they are. But sometimes we, we have people in the business who really, no matter how hard they try, their best isn't good enough for us. They'd be much happier somewhere else. So we've sort of developed this way of really helping people leave the business. And yes, that probably costs us loads more in you know, wages and so on, um, but it's probably the right way of doing it. Um, but because we don't have any targets to meet, you know, I, I'm not really incentivized by turnover. I don't even know what our turnover is. I know what our profit is. I don't know what our turnover is. Um, what I'm really interested in is when I go around the shops, are they consistently good? So how, how do you spend a typical week? So I probably do one day in the office a week, but I'm, not, I'm no good on two days. So one day's enough for me. What happens if you're two days? Um, I just end up lighting fires and you know, causing havoc, really. Right. Uh, I spend two days a week going around shops. Um, so I'll do 15, 20 shop visits in a day. So I'll get up early and just bang out the shops. Um, I do one day a week on my prison work and spend quite a lot of time in prisons. Uh, and. I'm a, I chair a wonderful charity called Prison Reform Trust. So I'm quite involved in the sort of policy side of things. And then I have one day a week where I'm just sort of wandering around looking for ideas and just asking a load of questions and learning. I find business fascinating. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. so when you're in a shop, so if I'm running one of the shops and you come in, what, what happens? What okay, happens? we have a chat. Ask, ask how you are. Um, I sort of have a little look around just to sense, because I can tell within like three seconds whether it's whether you're on it or not, because it's all about the standards. And then I look at the figures to have a look how the figures are doing compared to last year. Um, I ask them how they are themselves, how the family are, um, what problems what problems I need to sort out, um, and then head off to the next shop. 
Really? Mm. So when you... Going back a level, back up to the board, the board level, you have five on your board, I think that's right? Yeah. Um, what are the big questions and choices that you typically face? I'm not trying to get to confidential stuff, but yeah, no, at the moment, no. what are the big choices you're, you're thinking about? We are in a very fortunate position that we're a very profitable business. So it's what do you do with the cash? So we don't have any debt, and it's what do we do with the cash long term? And it's where you invest it, which fits with our skills, because we've we've got a number of examples where we've tried things that strayed away from our core skills, where we made a complete mess of it. Mm. So it's a combination of trying to keep the focus on where we're going. Um, We spend a lot of time talking about culture. We spend a lot of time talking about um, looking after our colleagues Mm. um, and that kind of, I mean, this point is really informal. We do like five board meetings a year. I do the minutes um, and I try and do the minutes within a week. So otherwise I've forgotten what, what we talked about. Um, but it's just a really good for, format for, for my dad and myself just to get a bit of a sense check on things sometimes. Mm. And just to, and we have, a, we have a retreat w- w- once a year where we go to a pub in the countryside somewhere and just sort of talk about a few big topics. Great. And I remember your, um, your father, John, so he wrote a book called Dear James, which he passed on his lessons. Which of the lessons you really took to heart and which are the ones you perhaps even ignored? I think the... The thing that is, as you get older, you understand that um, things happen for a reason and also that you need a longer term view on things. When you're young, you just want to sort everything out straight away. Uh, everything, you know, it's either a crisis or it's a, you know, or you're going to create another crisis. So it's just seeing things in a probably a calmer, more mature light right. and um, that there's a cycle to these things. And if you were to write a book in the future, what would it be about? What would it be about? I'd be quite, I'm quite interested in how you motivate colleagues through kindness and love mm. and what works and what doesn't. Mm. And I don't think I'll ever be able to put a sort of a financial equation to it, mm. but it's just understanding that you know, if someone goes to one of our holiday homes with their family and has an amazing week's holiday, how does that really impact the rest of the business and the way they serve customers? and the way they buy into our culture. To what extent does it help being a family-owned business when it comes to ensuring that your business can, to, can adapt to the changes in the environment? I think being a family business that's profitable with cash in the bank makes it a lot easier for us to be adaptable mm-hmm. and to take risks. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of family businesses that aren't in our position. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how they handle things. You know, we've had times where we've nearly run out of money and you know, we thought the whole thing was going to go wrong. Um, but for me, a family business isn't there for the benefit of the family. It's there for the benefit of everybody in our family, which is the five and a half thousand colleagues who work very hard every day for us as leaders. Mm. And I think if you just run a family business to the benefit of the few family members that are either in or out of the business, Mm. I don't think you end up really generating the wealth and the values of a family business. I think for me, a family business is when everybody is part of the family. Mm. That's very, that's very inspirational. How do you, how do you communicate, obviously it comes through what you're saying and how it comes across, but how do you, how do you communicate that so people get it? Because you can say it, you you can say it, your family can say it, but how do you actually cascade that across all the different shops and stores you have? So we do it in two ways. One is we do a lot of leadership training so that myself and my dad are in, involved in that heavily. So we're building our new training center. 
Timpson University. Yeah, I saw it. that, yeah. Um, and that's where we talk a lot about how we look after colleagues, how we have difficult conversations, um, how we um, interview to recruit the right kind of personalities and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, um, my dad and myself spend a lot of time going around the shops, so we know a lot of our colleagues personally very well. But I do lots of things called road shows. So I'm starting in October. I've got five months. It's like a, it's like a sort of a band going on tour. I say the same thing really? every time, <laughs> um, although it's just me with a little microphone. And I go around and I'm updating everybody on what the plans are of the business. Um, what are the things we're introducing to make their jobs better and give and give better customer service? But most of it is all around. What are we doing for you for this company to be a, a better place? There's a lot of listening on your part, right? And asking a lot of questions. But there's a lot on your shoulders. How do you how do you keep resilient? Because there'll be ups and downs. There'll be some weeks that are good and, and bad. What do you do personally? Um, I'm just on it. I find it much easier just to be on it all the time. So rather than you know, I don't work like crazy hours. I don't work weekends. But when I work, I'm I'm on it. I just had a colleague today phoning me because he can't get the holidays he wants because he's used too many up or something. So to him, that's really important. They come to you. So he'll come to me, send me an email, and I'll just phone up the area manager and say, listen, can we just sort it? And when you hand over to the next CEO, um, how, would, how would you like people to talk about you in terms of your, your impact, your, your legacy? I mean, don't forget, a lot of people in the business have known me since I was like 13, 12 years old. Um, they call me the whirlwind because it's just like quick. I'm just on. Yeah, I got that. Yeah. So yeah. I would like people to think that I was just um, someone who who put people before profit. Very good. James, it's been inspiring talking to you, learning about your own style, your own impact. Uh, fantastic in terms of the, the impact you have on people's lives, especially people who've had a rough time. Uh, and you can see it in the terms of how you look after them, but also how you look after the business, both now and in the future. And that combination of kindness, training, ongoing renewal, innovation, being on it, uh, and making profit, uh, that's important too. It is weird that if you really look after your people, you recruit really good people and trust them to run the business, you make money. Thanks ever so much for your time. And that was another edition of Transformation Talks with me, David Lancefield. Thanks for listening.